Hi everyone, welcome along to On The Margin, a podcast where we discuss people, companies and economics outside of the mainstream. This week, Boaz and I are talking to Frank Moussi. Frank is a Venezuelan economist currently working at the London School of Economics advising governments around the world on how to sustainably grow their economies. We'll discuss what causes some countries to succeed and others fail, what's it like to be in the room advising presidents on their policies, and how countries raise money and who are their creditors. So let's get started. Welcome along, Frank. Thank you. So Frank, you're currently advising countries around the world on their economic policy. How did you get into that in the first place? So the uh, the story is a funny one. <clears throat> by a, a, a chance, and really by luck, I had the fortune of knowing Professor Ricardo Hausmann, who directs the growth lab at the Harvard Kennedy School. And uh, I was, you know, about a year out of college. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my career. I had studied physics and philosophy, but also had taken a lot of economics coursework. I was sick of my job at Wall Street. I had been a fixed income analyst, you know, bond analyst, looking at fiscal sustainability and, and, and how governments finance themselves, how wide their budget deficits are and so on. But I wanted a change of career. And by pure luck, essentially, uh, uh, I bumped into Ricardo Hausmann, who needed boots on the ground for a research project that he was doing in Albania, the eastern European country that's just you know 80 kilometers east of the heel of the boot of Italy. It's a country that has uh, the second lowest income per capita level in Europe. So it's, it's, it's almost the least developed country on the European continent. Um, so his research team, Ricardo Hausmann's, was based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, with a six or maybe seven hour time difference with Tirana, Albania. And so he needed someone to be there at the finance ministry to keep him in the loop about what was happening. Uh, uh, and he needed someone to look at tax revenue statistics very closely, based essentially to do Excel work and to diagnose why tax collections were not meeting targets and and how the, the execution of the budget was going. There was a lot of concern about Albanian fiscal policy at the time, and I had just that skill set. So it was a match made in heaven, and he, 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 he sent me to Albania for a year. I lived in Tirana, and that's how I got started. What was it like being on the inside advising the Albanian finance ministry? Well, the so, you know, when you study economics... You read about political economy, the political business cycle, and how governments are tempted to run large budget deficits when there are elections and so on. And it's all very abstract. And you, you know, you read about it on your textbook in a classroom, you know. Uh, but then when you're actually in the room where it happens, uh, when the president is giving orders to the finance minister and pressuring them to spend more, you really see that pressure in action. Uh, you hear things like the president just called, he's telling me to raise pensions 10% and public sector salaries 8%. It's like, if you do that, you completely destroy the budget for like five or six years to come. Like that would be a, a, a horrible thing to do, but there you see like, the finance minister with his phone in his hand, having just hung up with the prime minister, that's telling him to do this thing. And so the reality from the textbook just comes to life right in front of you. And you see like, oh, wow. So like, this is really real. It really, really does happen. Uh, 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 
So it's just a political economy comes alive when you're when you're there and you see politics pressuring the finance ministry. That must be quite a relief to see all the economic theories finally coming to life. Otherwise, you must ask yourself sometimes, what's all this studying for? But anyway, I believe the discipline's called development economics. Can you give us an overview, like a 101, of like what exactly is development economics? Sure. So I think... Honestly, the only way to really start that question is as early as the 1700s, before the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, the world looked very different than it looks today. Income per capita levels were basically at subsistence levels throughout the world. We're talking, you know, 500 to 1,200 uh, uh, real dollars, like, like current dollars per person per year. So that's like, you know, a couple dollars a day, basically. Uh, what was the world like then? Well, the average woman had like six and a half babies. Uh, life expectancy was like, I can't remember the exact number, but between like 30 and 40 I mean, years or mo- something. Most of those babies died under the age of five. Exactly. Uh, life was, was, was short and ugly. Uh, um, most of the population was rural rather than urban. Nowadays, you know, most of everybody lives in a city. Back in the day, most of everyone was rural. Uh, life was very, very different then. You know, academic attainment, achievement was mostly for a tiny minority of people. Most people were illiterate. And so the world has changed dramatically. Uh, fertility rates have fallen hugely. The world has urbanized and crucially living standards measured by income per capita rose dramatically. We went from subsistence incomes to some places in the world having $128,000 in income per capita. So development is really the process of rising living standards when societies and countries become richer and richer. Now, why is this an active field of academic study? In the 1700s, the difference between the richest country in the world, which is probably the Netherlands, and the poorest country in the world, I'm not sure what it would have been, was about four to one. So the richest country was only four times richer on a per capita basis than the poorest country. Nowadays, the poorest country in the world is about as poor as the poorest country in the 1700s. But the richest country is you know, Luxembourg, uh, Qatar, uh, so, you know, we're talking, you know, $150,000 in income per capita. So the gap has widened from four to one to like a hundred to one. So the differences in income per capita and living standards have become staggering over the last 300 years. So development is really the study of why some countries became rich and others remained at essentially subsistence income levels. Uh, and it's not just a passive study of why this happened, but it, of course, uh, uh, at the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics, we try and think of policy recommendations to help countries get on the path of development to accelerate uh, GDP per capita growth, ultimately. So sorry, Frank, I'm going to ask for another 101. Can you explain how the bond market fits in into um, development economics? Because I understand it on an individual level. If I want to raise some money, I could go to a bank. I could maybe have a credit card, take out some loans. But who do countries turn to and how does that affect their development? Sure. Okay. so I would say at a high level, there are two or really three main types of sovereign debt. 
you can either borrow from multilateral organizations. That's a first option. So from the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and there are, let's say if you're in Latin America, there are smaller development banks in, in every region. You could borrow from uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Corporación Andina de Fomento, the BCA from Central America, and so on. So you could get like multilateral or official financing. These loans are typically tied to reforms. So you must, as a country, you must meet certain reform criteria in order to be eligible for those loans and for those disbursements to continue. So uh, sometimes those targets are quantitative performance targets. So you need to have a certain fiscal deficit to continue getting IMF disbursements. So, so more money from the IMF. Uh, Sometimes you need to pass some kind of big reform, maybe a judicial reform, maybe a tax reform. Uh, and in exchange for that, you get multilateral money. Uh, the plus side is that this multilateral money is typically cheap. You know, you're paying two to 4% or sometimes less. Um, so that's one option. Another option, which is less relevant because it's typically smaller, is bilateral debt. You can borrow directly from some country. So the, the only countries that really do this in size currently, as, as far as I know, is China, essentially. China makes big loans, uh, but they're typically tied to projects and they come with a lot of strings attached. There's significant opacity with Chinese loans. Nobody really knows what the terms are, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the final maybe not the final, but the third most important uh, way that sovereign governments can raise money is in public markets. So governments can issue bonds on public markets and private investors buy these bonds and essentially lend money to these governments. So if these bonds are issued in U.S. dollars, they're typically governed by the state of New York in, in, in the United States. So they're New York law bonds. So they're issued in a foreign jurisdiction, the United States. Uh, and they're bought by hedge funds, fixed income funds, family offices, et cetera, et cetera. And so these are private debt contracts. Uh, this debt is not subsidized. It's expensive. It's much more expensive than multilateral debt. So, uh, if you're a very, very well-managed economy, which investors trust is safe. So in Latin America, think like Peru, which is a very, very well-managed macroeconomy. Uh, you may pay, you know, I don't know, 200 basis points more than the United States government. So two percentage points more than the US government or three percentage points more than the US government. But if you're a risky country, maybe a El Salvador, you have to pay, I don't know, 11 percentage points more than the United States Treasury. Or, so that's the, 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 the difference between the interest rate that a country pays and the interest rate that the United States government pays is called the country risk premium. So countries that are perceived as more risky by markets have to pay higher country risk premium. Now, there's a final caveat I should make, which is that it's... Enorm it is usually much more preferable for governments to borrow in their own currency than in a foreign currency like the U.S. dollar. So, but not all countries have the privilege of being able to do this. So, for instance, 
Brazil's government can borrow in reais. South Africa's government can borrow in rand. Uh, but Venezuela's government has never been able to borrow in bolivares and probably will never be able to borrow in bolivares. And all of its debt is denominated in dollars. So uh, uh, if countries have the option of borrowing in their own currency, they should do so. Uh, there's a whole literature that study this. It's, it's uh, termed Original Sin by Ricardo Hausmann, who was the, uh, my boss at the Growth Lab. Um, but anyway, those are the three main types of, of finance, multilateral, bilateral, and then market debt. Um, there's, there's two questions that I have with regards to what you just said. One of them is you mentioned most comp- most countries, if they have the option to, should borrow in their own currency. Um, I'd like to know why why that is. Why Why should you do that? Um, the second question is more with regards to the sort of um, market participants. So who are the people who are buying everything from Peruvian debt to this new debt that you mentioned from Venezuela? Because if I open my trading app, the, you know, the app that I have to manage my investments, I see Vanguard funds, I see everything from you know GameStop to Dogecoin, I don't really see Venezuelan bonds trading on on my app. So I'm I'm suspecting it's not everyday investors who are buying these debt instruments. Yeah. So uh, on your your second question, uh, who are the buyers of uh, sovereign bonds? Who are the buyers and and kind of how is it traded? You know, how, how does that look like the whole market? So typically your buyers are fixed income funds, pension funds. Uh, hedge funds of various types. So large institutional investors. And I mean large. Uh, your typical buyer will buy, you know, a million dollar tickets. So you buy a million dollars of bonds at a time, give or take. It's about uh, my budget. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so the markets for fixed income are remarkably inefficient. Um, when I was working, I was doing fixed income in 2014. They're still largely done over the telephone. You literally put a phone between your ear and your shoulder and you call up different clients. Oh, are you interested in buying this? Are you interested in selling this? At what price are you interested in buying and selling? And so there is a real role for the market maker to actually make markets and for brokers to find buyers and sellers. Um, I thought that that sector was ripe for automation or at least you know to 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 mechanization of some kind to have less actual people doing that intermediating that market but as far as i know it remains broadly the same um liquidity on many of these bonds is very bad so you end up paying wide spreads to whoever's making the market so if you're buying a bond let's say the face value is 100 it's trading at 101 to 102. So that's a, a full percentage point spread between the bid and the ask. So uh, you're losing money on every trade to the market maker because they're they're quite inefficient. So in US equities markets, for instance, you mentioned GameStop. Um, the bid offer spread on GameStop is probably like one US dollar cent. So it's an extremely efficient and liquid market. Fixed income markets are nothing like that. It's 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 very, very different. Um, of, of why is it preferable for countries to issue in their own currency? 
rather than foreign currency. Basically, that's because if a country like Peru, a country like Peru, its revenue is denominated in local currency, but uh, debt payments on bonds denominated in dollars are denominated in dollars. And so if there are fluctuations in their exchange rate, their debt service costs, basically how expensive it is to serve the debt will fluctuate with fluctuations in the FX rate. So there can be a little bit of fiscal instability, essentially. If there's a big devaluation, if the exchange rate goes from one to one to two to one, then your interest bill can double with the and your, your debt service becomes much more expensive. So you typically want to denominate interest payments in the currency in which you're collecting revenue. That, that's that's one reason there are more, but but that's the thrust of it. What happens when countries can't pay back? You've got a lot of experience on the case of Venezuela. What's happening with Venezuela at the moment? Venezuela stopped paying its eurobond debt in November of 2017. So when countries stop paying their debt, that's called a debt default. Um, so Venezuela can't raise any new money right now because it's still in debt default. So it owe, it was contractually obliged to make certain payments on certain dates and it didn't make those payments. So it's in violation of the debt contract. So in order to, to be able to ever issue debt again, it needs to come to an agreement with the holders of those defaulted debt contracts. It needs to, quote unquote, restructure the debt. Basically, uh, uh, it needs to get all of its creditors around the table, everybody that's owed money to, to buy Venezuela, get them all to agree to some kind of grand bargain and exchange the defaulted debt contracts for new debt contracts, and then start making payments on time and in full for the new debt contracts. That's called the debt restructuring. Venezuela hasn't done one, so it's locked out of capital markets. It can't issue bonds even if it wanted to. Oh, and plus, it's sanctioned. So <laughs> Yeah, it's a complex situation. Um, you mentioned that um, if a country is in debt default, it has to renegotiate uh, its uh, bonds, effectively. But if we look at the last 120 years, for instance, the Russian Empire has gone from being the Russian Empire to being the Soviet Union to being many different countries, including Russia. Um, what happens in those situations? Is it, does it, you know, the, the sort of Russian imperial debt, does that at some point become Soviet debt, which then becomes Russian national debt? What, what happens when in these periods of, of intense transition? If the day of tomorrow, Venezuela decides to somehow become a country that decides uh, has a new government that decides to not associate itself closely to the current government. Does that debt get written off? Who who's at the negotiating table? How do these things get ironed out? So one reason why uh, hedge funds, fixed income funds, pension funds, and family offices demand New York law debt contracts is because they like having the New York legal system decide exactly these kinds of disputes. So if Venezuela becomes uh, Esperanza, a new country, and it sort of rejects all of its debt and its national history and blah, 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 but it continues having the capital city of Caracas, then 
essentially a New York court could decide whether Esperanza owes the money that was owed by the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. So that is why uh, a lot of debt contracts are written in like quote unquote neutral jurisdictions like London or New York, et cetera. Um, some countries issue debt in under governed by local law, by domestic law. And that, of course, is much more risky for the buyers, because if suppose Venezuela had issued debt on, in, with Venezuela, under governed by Venezuelan law, if Venezuela then becomes Esperanza, Esperanza can just have its, you know, its fake Supreme Court say uh, uh, this, this debt is no longer legitimate. This debt contract is void. Sorry, forget about it. Uh, so that's why the governing law of debt instruments is important to adjudicate conflicts. So we've touched upon all of Venezuela's massive problems in not being able to pay back its creditors. But how did it get into the economic turmoil that it's in at the moment? Um, because when I was a kid, Venezuela was quite a desirable place to live and a fantastic holiday destination. And Colombia was considered the dangerous place with uh, economic problems as well. Um, but it's kind of been role reversed. So how did Venezuela get into this situation? So GDP per capita went up from an extremely low base level at the turn of the 18, uh, at the turn of the century between the 1800s and the 1900s, and it reached something like 80 percent of United States income per capita levels in 1977. So 1977 was the peak year of GDP per capita in Venezuela, and since then it has literally been all downhill. Um, there was a, after 1977, there was a period of stagnation that lasted through the 80s and the early 90s, uh, which is what ultimately got Hugo Chavez elected. So, so the uh, living standards didn't continue to increase. In fact, it fell a little bit. There was a lot of economic malaise, a large currency devaluation, uh, uh, etc. So that stagnation is what got Hugo Chavez elected. But Hugo Chavez, since he took office in 1999, uh, began to do everything that an economics te textbook tells you not to do. So he committed essentially every mistake in the book, as it were. And so I can just talk a little bit about what some of those mistakes are or were. The first mistake is just to fundamentally misunderstand the role of the private sector in society. So you look at any advanced economy, the United States or Europe, uh, and the private sector plays an enormous role in the economy. It's the largest employer. Um, it's where all the productivity growth comes from, or a lot of it. Uh, it, it it's just even in countries that have enormous uh, social safety nets and that have a welfare state like Denmark have a vibrant and thriving private sector that is supported by the government. So Hugo Chavez didn't think that the private sector was important. In fact, he essentially demonized the private sector from day one, not just rhetorically, but through acts of policy. Um, their labor regulation was tightened in an absurd way that made it very costly to hire people, very difficult to fire people. Uh, 
it gave unions very, very, very strong power. Uh, and essentially, uh, that, that was just one thing. Then there were also all of these bureaucratic requirements for imports and exports. So in 2003, currency controls were imposed. And so exporting anything became a nightmare. And because there were multiple exchange rates, uh, exporters had to export at the official exchange rate, making their exports a lot less competitive. This was a total own goal in terms of economic policy, but Hugo Chavez didn't really seem to care. There were also massive waves of expropriations without compensation. So, you know, one day on national television, Hugo Chavez live on TV could announce the expropriation of your business, of your farm, of your factory, of your whatever. And obviously this totally tanked uh, animal spirits and appetite for investment in Venezuela. Uh, there were, you know, in parallel to all of this, not only was there anti-market uh, uh, policies and hostility towards the private sector, but there was also a terrible, terrible management of the macroeconomy. So a basic principle in macroeconomic management is to try and have counter-cyclical fiscal policy, especially if what you're a commodity exporter. It means that when the economy is slowing down, you want to put your foot on the accelerator. And then when the economy is heating up, you want to put your foot on the brakes, essentially, to try to use fiscal policy to go against the business cycle. Um, so in a country like Venezuela, that means that when you have high and rising oil prices, you want to save money. You want to accumulate resources in a sovereign wealth fund. Uh, and when you have low and falling oil prices, you want to deplete that sovereign wealth fund. So you want to smooth consumption over time. It's what Saudi does. It's what Chile does. It's what a lot of commodity exporters that have decent macroeconomic management do. Venezuela didn't do that. In fact, it did the opposite. So during the good times, when oil was at you know, 100 $120 a barrel in the late 2000s and early 2010s, rather than saving money, it actually issued, it sextupled the external debt. So it spent all of the oil bonds, it spent all of the windfall, which was over a trillion dollars. And not only that, it issued like a hundred and something more billion dollars in debt. So it did the opposite of counter-cyclical fiscal policy. It did pro-cyclical fiscal policy. So as the economy was heating up, the government put its foot on the accelerator, which of course meant that when the economy began to cool down, as oil prices fell, they had to slam their foot on the brakes which amplified the shock of falling oil prices in 2014, 15, 16, as the commodity supercycle ended. So there was this broad wave of anti-market policies, labor regulation, uh, uh, expropriations. There were also price controls and profit controls, um, which were totally draconian and arbitrary. Uh, businesses couldn't really set prices however they wanted to. So if you, you set up a pharmacy and you want to sell a toothbrush for $3, maybe you're not allowed. The government says you have to sell toothbrushes at $1.70. So if it's not profitable to sell toothbrushes at that price, then you just stop selling toothbrushes. 
Um, and so they did that with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of goods. Uh, they also regulated profit margins. So you could only have a 30% gross margin on certain merchandise. And of course, there are some businesses that have margins that are much, much higher than that, that only function at those margin levels. So anyway, the, the, the point is that Venezuela made every policy mistake in the book that you could do, and it ended up decimating its own private sector. So the tragic thing is that uh, in democratic countries, when governments make such egregious policy failures, the economy typically tanks relatively quickly, and the government that made those failures is voted out of office very quickly. But the thing is that because of the commodity supercycle, uh, Hugo Chavez and his government could paper over the effects of such bad policy because if you destroy the private sector and you destroy domestic production of toothbrushes and toilet paper and food and whatever, you can just import it from abroad and you know hand it away, hand it out with subsidies and so on. Uh, and so the effects of the destruction of Venezuela's private sector won't weren't felt until oil prices fell after the summer of 2014. What was it that uh, the Chavistas got so wrong? And could we have known in advance that it would be so disastrous? Were there people at the time calling out that these are disastrous policies? So one crucial, crucial piece of the market economy is prices. So prices, you know, it's just what you pay for stuff at the supermarket. It's the price of foreign currency. It's just, you know, in our everyday lives, we don't think about prices very much other than they're too high or, wow, that's cheap. But prices are hugely important in the organization of economic systems because they contain information about the relative scarcity of different things. When something is expensive, it's because it's relatively scarce. And so what many of the government's policies did was essentially destroy the price system and therefore destroy functioning economic incentives in the country. So when prices are high, that incentivizes firm to go produce the thing that's commanding a high price on the market. If prices are low, it means that an industry is saturated and that, that entrepreneurs should look for opportunities elsewhere. Prices tell economic agents what to do. So in Venezuela, they screwed with essentially every important price, starting with the price of foreign currency, the price of the U.S. dollar. In most countries, you just have one exchange rate that's determined by the market. It floats. In Venezuela, you had a system of multiple exchange rates from 2003 up until the present. So I remember in 2012 or thereabouts, there was an official exchange rate at six bolivares per dollar. There was an official exchange rate at 15 bolivares per dollar. There was an official exchange rate at 50 bolivares per dollar. And the black market rate was at 90. So if a company is importing inputs from abroad, machine parts, raw materials, it needs to know what the price of foreign currency is. And depending on who you are and who you're friends with, you could have many, many different prices. So is it profitable to produce with imported inputs? Well, you don't know, because it really depends on the exchange rate that you get or don't get. So the government screwed with the price of foreign currency. That's a big, big no-no. Um, the government also had incorrect prices for gasoline and electricity and public services. So there were massive gasoline subsidies in Venezuela. Gasoline was essentially free for, you know, 
for, for probably over a decade, uh, uh, very, very, very cheap gasoline, uh, very, very, very cheap electricity. And again, that gives economic agents incorrect signals. There are some industries that are very energy intensive, say maybe steel. It requires an enormous amount of electricity. So when your government is giving away electricity, then you set up a steel plant. Uh, but, but of course, the government is actually bearing the cost of electricity, even if you are not paying it. So that's another important price. That is. As well, that was an important Bitcoin mining hub for, for a while because energy costs were next to zero. Exactly. Exactly. And what other prices did they mess with? Well, of course, retail prices were controlled. Profit margins were controlled. So the entire mechanism that is used to under, underpin a market economy, the price system, was completely distorted and, 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 and warped thanks to all of these, these policies. So, I mean, governments can, can, can you know, embellish policies with all the rhetoric they want, but if you ultimately distort the price system, uh, that, that's, that's not a good thing. So you've heard about the price manipulation, the enormous debts that they accrue, and the inflation, which is completely untamed. How does the final collapse of Venezuela play out? Yeah, so, all right. Venezuela's, the last good year in Venezuela's economy was 2012. That was the year where Hugo Chavez faced off uh, against Enrique Capriles for his to be elected for his third presidential term. So obviously we're talking about Venezuela, pro-cyclical fiscal policy. By now, by that time, you know, budgetary institutions have been destroyed. The government could do whatever it wanted with fiscal policy. So it ran an enormous fiscal deficit to get Hugo Chavez reelected. They souped up the economy with essentially steroids and cocaine and, and, you know, all the fiscal policy stimulants you can imagine to get Hugo Chavez reelected. That year, the economy grew 5.7% in real terms. Um, and then the hangover began. So in 2013, into the second, third, and especially fourth quarter, GDP growth began to slow. It slowed dramatically from 5.7% the year before to like 1% by the end of 2013. And in early 2014, it was really grinding down to a halt. So shortages of toilet paper were already starting to appear because of these price controls. And so the hangover from the binge of Hugo Chavez's reelection was already really setting in, even though oil prices were still at a hundred and something dollars per barrel. And then in the summer of 2014, oil prices began to fall. And by the end of 2014, they had collapsed. So the economy was already slowing down thanks to the hangover of like a decade of horrible fiscal policy plus a year of truly horrible fiscal policy. And then the economy was slapped in the face by a sudden 50% reduction in oil prices. So that's when the crisis began in earnest. Venezuela's oil prices, I remember in January 2015, Venezuela's bond prices fell from like 100 cents on the dollar to like 30 cents on the dollar. So it was a real, real panic moment. Uh, typically, when, when, when countries face such a large external shock, a collapse in the price of your major export commodity, you adjust uh, you, you, you adjust the economy. You, you, you make certain adjustments. Crucially, you allow the local currency to devalue vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. dollar. You allow the currency to float and to, to depreciate. 
basically. Venezuela didn't do that. Venezuela didn't take any adjustments whatsoever. It didn't raise the price of gasoline. It didn't raise the price of electricity. It didn't devalue. It didn't do anything. Essentially, Venezuela's policy was to pray for higher oil prices. And higher oil prices did not materialize. In fact, oil prices fell a little further. And in 2015, I think they were a little lower than in 2014. And then in 2016, they were also a little lower. Or, 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 or they stayed more or less flat. And so Venezuela's economy fell something like 3% in 2014, I think, then maybe like 6% in 2015. And by 2016, it was contracting like 10 or 12% per year. So in this protracted economic crisis with low oil prices, zero adjustments, the government's tax revenue began to fall, real tax revenue. And its oil income wasn't very high either. But it wanted to, you know, of course, continue spending and continue being the big government that it had always been. So it had larger and larger fiscal deficits. So the government began to print money to finance the fiscal deficit. It was spending more than it was earning, and it was paying for the difference by creating new local currency at the central bank. Uh, of course, the inevitable consequence of that is inflation. So inflation began to accelerate and accelerate and accelerate. And slowly but surely, as the economy contracted, the, the inflation rate began to climb and climb and climb and climb. And in 2017, the country actually entered hyperinflation. In November 2017, monthly prices rose more than 50% in a single month. Uh, and that was the beginning of a horrible, horrible episode that lasted probably until last year, 2022. So in 2017, inflation might have been like 1,500%. But in 2018, I think it might have reached 500,000%. In 2019, maybe a million percent or 2 million percent. I can't remember the actual numbers. It doesn't make a huge difference. Uh, but the, the, the monetary system exploded, essentially. Uh, why, now, why does hyperinflation matter? So how exactly is it bad? Well, for one thing, it wipes out all savings in local currency because all savings in local currency are eaten away by inflation. So if your savings could buy you six months of supermarket and two months of uh, pharmacy and whatever, after hyperinflation, your savings can buy you a bar of candy. They, they literally evaporate. Uh, so that happened. Uh, wages that were payable in the local currency also collapsed dramatically. Uh, and, and the economy became a lot smaller. I think 2017, 18, 19, those were years when, when the economy contracted 20% or so per year. Uh, and nowadays, living standards are like 75% lower than they were at the beginning of the crisis. So that is a staggeringly large collapse in living standards. People think of the global financial crisis in the, or the, in the US. GDP per capita might have fallen 4%. People think about the Great Depression, which was much worse, much longer. Peak to trough, GDP fell 29%. In Venezuela, GDP fell 75% per capita. Uh, so this is... No, two and a half times the Great Depression of 1929. This is, we're talking about a much, much, much bigger collapse in the economy. So one thing I don't get is 
when things are going from bad to worse and inflation is going from single digits to triple digits, the Venezuelan government seems like they continue to print money. Why do they do that? Well, this is this is a, a an, an excellent and deep question that really gets into the heart of policymaking in a failed state. So hyperinflation is a very well understood phenomenon uh, in academia, in policymaking circles. There have been like 58 hyperinflationary episodes in the world. Essentially, all of them are due to large fiscal deficits that are financed by central bank money. So any orthodox economist will tell you what you need is a very large fiscal adjustment. You need to cut back on spending. You need to increase tax revenue. So you print less money and you stop the hyperinflation. But after 20 or so years of economic mismanagement, you no longer have any technocrats in government. Uh, Government by then is completely allergic to technocracy and uh, 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 disciplinary expertise to academic advice. They just don't want to hear it. They don't care about your degree. They don't care about your knowledge. They don't care about your explanations and your models. Uh, they just don't care. They believe in their political rhetoric. They believe that they're creating a revolution. They believe that they are fighting against the oligarchy and the U.S. empire. And they just they approach reality and understand reality in those terms. So if you talk to them about, you know, listen, money printing is actually an inflationary tax that has a tax rate, which is inflation, and a tax base, which is the real money supply. As you increase the tax rate, uh, the tax base begins to shrink because there's a laugher curve for the inflation tax. So this is this is like your academic explanation of what is happening during hyperinflation. Their brains shut off. They just don't care. They're they're not here for your technical explanations of what's happening. Uh, There was one candidate for some kind of political office in Venezuela. I can't remember who it was. And they asked them about inflation and why it was going up and money printing, why the government kept printing so much money. And what the candidate said was, look, prices are going up a lot. So, of course, the government needs to print more money. You know, the government needs to pay salaries and so on. So if prices are going up, it needs to print more money. So it got the causality exactly backwards. It's prices are going up because the government is printing money. Uh, but 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 as I say, it just they don't. Uh, uh, um, when a government reaches hyperinflation, they just don't want to listen to your technical. Uh, they don't want to face reality. They don't want to understand what's actually causing what they're too far gone at that point um i'd also like to discuss times in which maybe the market gets things a little bit wrong or maybe not necessarily the market but participants within the market um and i like to bring up the point that was all over the headlines in mid 2022 where people were talking about el salvador and people were saying oh, there's a significant chance that El Salvador is going to default on their debt obligations that are due in January 2023. Now, back then, in June of 2022, you wrote an article um, that is published in Yahoo Finance, and it ends saying, um, all this leads me to conclude that El Salvador probably won't default in 2023. 
Now, January 23 came and went, and you were right. El Salvador did not default on its debt then. Um, nevertheless, the news and the media is full of stories saying El Salvador would likely, or it's very possible, that they would default um, January 23. So can you talk a little bit about that? What do markets, or maybe certain market participants, sometimes get wrong a bit about this sort of market? So the El- I love the El Salvador story because uh, it's a crazy one. It has a lot to do with Bitcoin, really. So in November 2021, or maybe September 2021, uh, President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador uh, made Bitcoin legal tender. And he rolled out a government wallet that had allowed users to keep balances in U.S. dollars and, and, and balances in Bitcoin. He made businesses, particularly the large ones, accept Bitcoin. Uh, and he made a lot of noise with this reform and got just like cover to cover media coverage. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and it, 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 it was an extraordinary public relations stunt. Markets, traditional fixed income markets, were spooked by the measure because uh, it seemed like President Nayib Bukele was like embracing the new financial system of crypto, uh, if 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 such a thing exists, and that it was rejecting you know traditional financial institutions and and and, and the traditional way of doing things, and so markets were really spooked by his embrace of Bitcoin. They were spooked also by the fiscal deficits that he ran during the pandemic. So El Salvador had a fiscal deficit of like $800 million before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, he widened that fiscal deficit to like $3 billion. He really spent a lot of money. Uh, and markets were very concerned about the fiscal sustainability of the country and its ability to continue making debt payments. And add to that the fact that uh, the Bitcoin rollout was actually kind of expensive. He spent like between 300 and 400 million dollars rolling this out in a country with a GDP of like 27 billion dollars. So that's over one, like one and a half percent of GDP on all of this Bitcoin rollout. So markets were spooked. They didn't understand what Bukele was doing with Bitcoin. They thought that this was like a rejection of traditional finance. And so they just sold the bonds, sold his bonds, El Salvador's bonds. El Salvador's bonds fell from like 100 cents on the dollar to something like as low as 27 cents on the dollar at the at the lowest point. Um, in emerging markets, fixed income, in bond markets, there tends to be a lot of groupthink. There tends to be a lot of uh, 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 rallying around like a consensus view. And so I think that markets overreacted to all of this. And there was widespread expectation of default in 2023. The the bond that matured this January traded as low as I think 65 cents on the dollar, which you know, gave it an internal rate of return of something like 80% if you bought it at 65 cents on the dollar. So so the bond yielded an enormous amount because markets did not expect that it would be paid. But 
I always thought that that was a very funny and weird thing to think because El Salvador still had significant international reserves at its central bank. It had the IMF SDRs, the special drawing rights, which are essentially a source of liquidity that governments can tap relatively easily. There, there were disbursements from multilaterals that were widely expected. The BESIE, which is a Central American Development Bank, was expected to give uh, uh, El Salvador money, as was the Inter-American Development Bank. So there was new money coming in from multilaterals. There were reserves at the central bank. So there were, it seemed like there was capacity to pay. The other dimension that one looks at when assessing uh, uh, sovereign bonds is uh, willingness to pay. So we just spoke about capacity to pay. Willingness to pay also looked good. Um, why? So Bukele was kept saying that the, oh, the headlines are going to be wrong. I'm not going to default. This is just uh, uh, you know the establishment ganging up on El Salvador because I embraced Bitcoin. So Bukele staked a little bit of his political reputation on continuing to pay the bonds. And so that to me signaled that he actually did want to pay them. So his willingness to pay was strong. And the final and probably most important thing is that debt default is really costly, not only for the government, but for the country as a whole. So when you default on the debt, you typically see a dip in foreign direct investment. You see a dip in the animal spirits, in confidence in the economy. Uh, uh, debt default is usually bad for the economy. No one wants to invest in a country whose government is not paying its debts. But the costs of default in El Salvador are even higher than a regular country because the country is dollarized. El Salvador does not have its own sovereign currency like most countries do. It uses the US dollar. That means that its banks are in US dollars, uh, that, that, that everything is done in US dollars. So. If El Salvador defaulted on its bonds, that would be particularly bad. Um, El Salvador's banks hold a lot of debt from the government of El Salvador, as do its pension funds. So if the government defaulted on the debt, it would impair the balance sheets of the domestic banking system and the domestic pension system. We've seen all the drama about bank runs and, and, and bank failures recently. Uh, so in the United States, they're a little bit less serious because the U.S. can print money. The Federal Reserves can create new U.S. dollars to plug any holes in the banking system. But El Salvador doesn't have a Federal Reserve because it uses the currency of another country. So there is no lender of last resort in El Salvador. So if the government defaulted, it would impair the balance sheets of the domestic banking system. There could be a run on the banks. There's no one to mitigate the damage from a run. There's no one to stop a run in El Salvador because the Fed is in the U.S. and, and is not going to come rescue banks in El Salvador. So the costs of default in El Salvador are particularly high. It's particularly risky to default on your bonds when your banking system holds a lot of your bonds. You could trigger a run. And, and, and you can't rescue the domestic banking system because you can't bring your own currency. So to me, it just seemed like, like an absurd proposition 
that that El Salvador could default. Actually, hindsight is twenty twenty. It didn't seem absurd. It seemed unlikely. It seemed unlikely that it would default. They had capacity to pay, and their willingness to pay was also seemed pretty high, given the the the, the reputation that Bukele has staked on this issue and the, the 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 unusually high risks of that default for the economy. So to finish off, Frank, we're going to up the stakes a little bit. I'm going to ask you to make one more prediction, since you very eloquently explained the collapse of Venezuela and predicted El Salvador would be able to pay back their creditors, even though most experts said that they wouldn't be able to. So what do you think is going to happen on a global level, given the level of indebtedness? For example, there's lots of talk right now about the US debt ceiling. I would say that in general, having high levels of debt with rising refinancing costs is just a drag on the whole country uh, because um, governments say you have 100% of debt to GDP and your cost of debt is maybe 3% on average. That means you're paying 3% of GDP as interest payments. Suppose government spending is 30% of GDP. That means you're spending one-tenth of your overall budget simply serving the debt. So that's one-tenth of the budget that could go to hospitals, it could have gone to education, it could have gone to boosting entrepreneurship, it could have gone to building infrastructure, but instead it's just paying down debt. So if countries have large stocks of debt and the interest rate that they have to pay on that debt is climbing, it's just less resources that the government has to spend on actually productive things. So my worry with 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 a lot of the European debt is, you know, many of these countries have busted budgets and large deficits, not because they're undertaking you know big investments to raise productivity and raise living standards and increase economic dynamism. It's because they have you know pension systems that are too large or you know public sectors that are too large or so I I, I don't get the general sense that 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 these very high debt to GDP ratios you know, that, that, that all of these debts have been taken out for produ- productively. That's not my sense. And so I just think that this is going to be a drag on 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 on, on many countries for, for, for a long time to come. Um, that's not a very hopeful thing to say, but I, I think it's just my view. Wow, what a gloomy outlook. Note to self, don't end the podcast with an economist prediction. Anyway, thank you so much for your time, Frank. Baz and I have learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have too. My pleasure. Uh, To our listeners, tune in again soon for more discussions about people, companies, and economics outside the mainstream. We will speak soon.